0: Welcome to episode eighteen, biography, the historical present, and you. Now, the "you" part I won't get to to until the very end of the podcast. This podcast was uh, inspired once again by one of my listeners, who wrote to me asking me asking me about the use of the present tense in biography. It's not used very often. Um, And uh, there are a number of reasons why uh, biographies are written in the past tense. Um, But there have been certainly a few that have been written in what's sometimes called the historical present or simply the present tense. I'm going to read to to you a passage, a short passage from Noel Riley Fitch's biography of Anaïs Nin um, for an example of the historical present. It's from the first chapter of her biography uh, titled Too Much Reality. And here's how it begins. High winds roil the waters of New York Bay as sheets of rain wash the decks of the Montserrat. The ship has been waiting in the harbor since two in the afternoon for the fog to clear before docking. Lightning cuts through the gray sky and seems to strike the murky sea. The Spanish passengers cross themselves and mumble prayers as they huddle in groups in the lounge of the ship. The sun sets at 7.03 p.m. this Tuesday, 11 August, 1914, on a world that is dark and stormy. The New York Times of the morning had told of French troops facing the Germans in Belgium, of fighting in Alsace, of transports full of refugees fleeing France and of American writer Owen Wister, Wister escaping a German cruiser aboard the Monatonka Only the ships from Spain and Portugal are still carrying away refugees. The violent thunder and lightning that shakes the Spanish passengers of the Montserrat seems an ominous parallel to this political weather. On deck, As the ship finally docks is a tall 11 year old girl with a round face and very large eyes that cannot hide her fear. Amid the wicker trunks and bird cages, Anais holds her youngest brother's violin case in both arms and shivers in the evening air, and thinks of herself and her family as emigrant artists washed ashore, having lost everything. I'm going to stop there. Uh, It's dramatic. It's immediate. I would say it's gripping. Um, It sets the scene. It's not very different from what you might read in a novel, uh, a historical fiction. Uh, But it is biography. Noah Riley Fitch is an esteemed biographer. Um, I regard her work highly. Uh, even paragraphs that seem in some sense made up, as how can the biographer know certain things, uh, she's relying on weather reports, she's relying on all kinds of data that allow her to write this dramatic scene. So what's wrong with doing it that way, writing a biography in the present tense? Um, Ostensibly nothing could be wrong with it. And yet there there are critics who are hostile to the use of the present tense, the historical present in biographies. They feel it's almost kind of uh, fakery uh, or it can come off as somehow sounding pretentious, uh, somehow willing a belief in the reality that uh, isn't there. Or to put it another way, it's what bothers some people about the historical presence is, in a sense, it's a lack of respect for the past. It's a lack. It doesn't acknowledge the fact that this is the work of a biographer or it could be a historian who is recreating the scene. Instead, it's an effort to just put you in the scene. Now, a lot of biographers do this and see no problem with it. But again, uh, when we're talking about pros and cons, the way people view this kind of work of the historical present, you will get some people that object to it. Uh, just as some people object to the biographer using the subject's first name as if that's overly familiar. Uh, if you only use the last name, uh, you could seem overly distant from your subject. There, I think there are certain um, aspects of biography where you can't win. That is, you're going to offend some readers or irritate some readers and please others by doing exactly the same thing. Uh, When I did my Marilyn Monroe biography, I tended to refer to her by her last name, though occasionally I did refer to her simply by her first name, Marilyn, when it somehow seemed appropriate. Uh, Part of the emotional weather of the biography, so to speak. Um, There is this crossover in technique between um, biography and the novel, between biography and fiction. Uh, Both are narratives. Uh, both are constructed realities, so to speak, even if one is labeled non-fiction. The writer who uh, in a sense made me a biographer, although I didn't know it the first time I read him, was William Faulkner. Uh, and the book I come back to again and again, not just because it's a brilliant work of fiction, but because it says so much to me as a biographer, is his novel, Absalom, Absalom, which uh, has various time frames. It has the time frame of 1909-1910 when Quentin Compson and Shreve McCannon are reconstructing the history of the Sutton family and particularly focusing on Charles Bond, uh, who they ultimately conclude is Thomas uh, Sutton's rejected son, a son with black blood, which is the reason for the rejection. Quentin and Shreve sit in a Harvard dormitory room in the cold New England dark, as Faulkner or the Faulkner's narrator keeps emphasizing. And what I love about this novel is that it's both about the effort at recreation and the recreation. So, for example, he describes toward the end of the novel Shreve, the Canadian, the child of blizzards and of cold in a bathrobe with an overcoat above it, the collar turned up about his ears. Quentin, the Southerner, the morose and delicate offspring of rain and steamy heat in the thin, suitable clothing which he had brought from Mississippi. His overcoat is thin and vain for what was as the suit lying on the floor where he had not even bothered to raise it. Then we slip into italics. And Faulkner doesn't say it, but his two characters are now in the past, or reimagining themselves in the past, in italics, the winter of 64, that is 1864. The army retreated across Alabama into Georgia. Now Carolina was just at their backs and Bond, the officer, thinking, we will either be caught and annihilated or old Joe, that's Joe Johnston, the Confederate general, will extricate us and we will make contact with Lee in front of Richmond and then we will at least have the privilege of surrender. And then one day, all of a sudden, he thought of it, remembered how that Jefferson regiment of which his father was now colonel was in Longstreet's corps, And maybe from that moment, the whole purpose of the retreat seemed to him to be that of bringing him within reach of his father, to give his father one more chance. One more chance at what? To give his father a chance to acknowledge him. What's wonderful about that passage is it not only goes into the historical present, uh, puts us back in civil war times, um, transitioning from the present of the novel nineteen o nine nineteen ten but it has bond thinking of his present and also of his future uh, someone in the past who 's thinking of his future it 's a very complex overlaying of time that it 's very difficult for a biographer to pull off because you, unlike the novelist, you cannot get inside of your subject's mind. Now, I'm going to give you one more example of the historical president, and this comes from my own work. It's from my biography of Lillian Hellman, and it comes from the chapter in which I'm describing her um, testimony before the House Un-American Activities Committee, otherwise known as HUAC. She was a Stalinist, I would say, what I say in the novel. She at one time was a member of the Communist Party, though she didn't want to admit it, and she certainly didn't want to testify against other people or implicate other people. It was a tricky moment in her life when she could have lost everything, as many people did who were blacklisted. Um, And she came up with a very interesting um, strategy which was, unlike the Hollywood Tent, for example, if you're familiar with the the screenwriters and uh, the one director who was accused of communist sympathies or being members of the Communist Party, and they essentially treated the congressional committee, that is, HUAC, with contempt. She treated it with respect, even though she had very little respect for it. By that, what I mean is she, she uh, arrived well-dressed, with impeccable manners, and in a tone of regret, saying, I don't want to bring bad trouble on friends of mine. I'll tell you about myself, but I don't want to, she used the phrase, name names, which had already become a notorious phrase. So she was in a very awkward position. Uh, and also, it's terrifying um, to face this battery of congressmen uh, who are above you. Uh, I took a lot of trouble in interviewing her lawyers, Daniel Pollitt and Joseph Rao, about um, the room in which she testified, where the press was, where the congressmen were, where she was seated at a table, them looking down at her. It's, uh, uh, it's like the day of judgment, and it wasn't a, a day of judgment for her. So here's a paragraph from my Lillian Hillman biography. Lillian Hellman has often been praised for her fortitude in confronting the committee. She stood by her principles. I will not cut my principles to fit this year's fashions, is the famous statement that she uh, had written and spoke during this testimony. She stood by her principles. This was an act of civil courage. It was also a supremely brave thing for any human being to do. Now, before I read the next sentence, as I'm looking at it on the page now, I kind of wish I had done what Faulkner did, which was to put the next words, the next part of the paragraph, in italics. And this is where the you comes in, in my title, biography, the historical present, and you. So just after I say, it was also a supremely brave thing for any human being to do, Next sentence. You take a taxi cab to the office building and walk up a flight of maybe 30 steps. Then you enter the rotunda. You wait for an elevator, but there's a crowd there, so it is simpler to walk up the marble circular staircase holding onto the solid brass handrail. Then you enter the caucus room. Maybe you are five minutes early and the committee is 10 minutes late, the waiting period. People are buzzing behind you. Nobody comes up and shakes you by the hand. Ever since you entered the room, photographer's flashbulbs have been exploding in your face and continue to do so throughout your testimony. Your lawyer objects about the lights bearing down on you. That's all the historical present. Now I switch again. Paulette never knew anyone who was not nervous under such circumstances. Some of the tough union bosses might have looked composed, but they had been hardened by years of adversarial situations. Pollitt himself never got used to it. He was always nervous. Daniel Pollitt, again, is one of of Lillian Hellman's attorneys. Well, obviously, I was trying to put you uh, in Lillian Hellman's place, and I felt the strongest, most dramatic way to do that was to shift to that historical present within the paragraph. I've done that rarely in my work. It is kind of a gimmick, but I think it works. I think it, it makes you think, perhaps, of experiences in your own life when you've faced, in a sense, a kind of reckoning, a day of judgment. And that's what I, regardless of Lillian Hellman's politics, whether you agree with them or don't agree with them, uh, whether you like her as a person or don't like her as a person, I wanted you as the reader, of my biography to identify with what it felt like for her or really for anyone to be in that position. That paragraph, also the 30 steps that you walk and the handrail and all that, that's because I was there, you know, uh, like a reporter, I went to the scene of the testimony Uh, I even paced out how how long the meeting room was, which was like the size of a football field. I asked many, many detailed uh, questions of her attorneys um, to get the exact circumstances and, in a sense, the precise measurements of that day in which she testified. And I think that also helped to to justify the historical present. One other thing I wanted to say about that, uh, and I think I can't be the only uh, biographer to whom this has happened. Although I understood intellectually why I was doing all this, that is, recreating this scene from Lillian Hellman's life, I didn't realize that there was a subtext. And I didn't realize it until after the book was completed, and I was working on my second biography. This is a biography of Martha Gellhorn. The first biography of Martha Gellhorn I wrote, which is titled Nothing Ever Happens to the Brave, the Story of Martha Gellhorn. It was written while she was still alive. I was in St. Louis, and I was interviewing uh, one of Martha Gellhorn's childhood friends. And she was talking about when Martha Gellhorn returned uh, in the 60s uh, to St. Louis and spent some time with her mother. Uh, Martha Gellhorn was born and raised in St. Louis, and her mother was a very, very, very famous reformer, friend of Eleanor Roosevelt example. At any rate, uh, she uh, took up some old friendships, uh, people she had known at, sc- at school. And I was interviewing one of these friends, a woman who started to say about how she felt particularly close to Martha. And Martha she thought felt close to her during this period in the late 60s. Because of the Vietnam War, they both had sons who, were, um, uh, who might be drafted who were facing that dilemma about what to do about an un, what they felt was an unjust war. Well, as I was doing this interview, it, it, there was like an electrical storm in my brain. Uh, I suddenly realized what that scene in Lillian Hellman's life meant to me. Uh, and What it meant to me was reliving my own draft board experience, my own uh, graduation from Michigan State University, Uh, being given my 1A notice that is draft eligible, and facing my draft board and telling them that I was opposed to the Vietnam War. Um, I had to come from Toronto, where I was in graduate school, to um, Roseville, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, where my draft board was. I came, I showed up, uh, like Lillian Hellman, in a suit, Uh, with a tie, and uh, spoke politely, and delivered my feelings about the war politely. And um, much to my astonishment, although the draft board, of course, didn't agree with me, um, to make a long story short, at the very end of the hearing, the head of the draft board said to me, well, I can't tell you what our decision is, but we'll do whatever is in our power uh to consider your request. I, I was just stunned. I thought I was expecting some much more hostility. I think they were impressed with the suit. I think they were impressed that, you know, there were draft dodgers in Canada that I'd come back and and face them and explain myself, that I did not treat with them with uh disrespect. Uh, I think All of that made a huge difference. And as a result, I was expecting some kind of conscientious objector duty. They didn't do that. They gave me a classification which essentially buried my record. I was never called up. Uh, I never had to do any kind of alternative service. They just sort of forgot about me. How does this compute with Lillian Hellman? Uh, Well, I think we, we faced a similar sort of day of judgment in our lives and reacted in much the same way. And, uh, you know, there were witnesses who were prosecuted by the committee. Um, I think because of her statement, because of her show of respect for the committee, because of her sense of regret, which was also how I treated the situation, it was regrettable that we had to do this, they essentially let her off. Uh, She certainly wasn't prosecuted. And in fact, in the press, it was a great victory for her. So I think I felt all of that while I was writing um the one paragraph that I sent to you and and that that chapter about her Huac testimony but I swear when uh, I was actually writing that um it never occurred to me that there was this parallel with my own draft experience as I say it was a kind of a bombshell uh, revelation to me Uh, about uh, a year and a half after I wrote that passage, and the book was published, and I was in St. Louis. Thanks for listening.